0: welcome back to the While We're Waiting, Hope After Child Loss podcast. I'm Jill Sullivan, your host and one of the co-founders of the While We're Waiting ministry. Thank you so much for joining me again today. My conversation today is with Tristan's mom and dad, Todd and Melissa Schaefer. In this first half of our discussion, they share the story of their sunshine boy and the shadow that gradually began to move across his face, ultimately resulting in him taking his own life in their garage. They describe their efforts to seek help for him and the peace they've found as they've learned to rest in God's sovereignty over Tristan's life. They also share about issues specific to suicide that can complicate the grief journey. I hope you'll come back next week for the second half of our discussion when you'll hear more about the website Melissa has developed specifically for Christian parents whose children have died by suicide and some practical tips for this journey that no one would ever choose. But for now... Here's today's conversation. Hi, Todd and Melissa. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Hi, Jill. Thanks for for having us.
0: Yes, it's an honor to be here. Yeah, well, I've been looking forward to visiting with you for quite a while now. Mm -hmm. Um, I always like to get started by giving my guests an opportunity to tell a little bit about themselves. So tell us where you're from and what life is like for you there.
1: Uh, we're currently living in Montreal, in Canada, and um, we're Americans. We moved up here about 20, just over 20 years ago uh, for my, my business. Uh, I work as a animation director, and um, so my work brought me up here. We, when we came to Quebec, we, um, we had no idea it was so French. I mean, we had an idea that it was French, but uh, that's been a challenge Living here in a very French environment, we tried to learn the language, but it's it's been it's been difficult. We've never really felt like we were going to stay up here for as long as we have, but um, yeah. you know it was originally supposed to be a year or two and uh, turned into twenty some years and we're still here wow. and, um, so yeah that's that's about a little bit about that
2: oddly enough the, the little French town we live in is a lot like the little town I grew up in Derby, Kansas. That's where I spent my the first part of my life. And then later moved to Los Angeles for the university years and met Todd in church. And that was the second part of my life. And then the third last twenty years have been here in Canada. Wow. And we did um the kids were all young when we moved here. We homeschooled them all the way through their high school years, and now they're in university or out of university now.
0: Yeah, you've had quite a life then. I can't imagine moving from Derby, Kansas, to Los Angeles. That had to be a big (laughs) culture change. And then to uh, Canada from there. So, that's interesting. Beaches
2: to sub-zero weather. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What a change.
0: What a change. So, you have a daughter and three sons. Uh, tell us a little bit about McKenna and Grayson and Sawyer. Um, just tell us a little bit about them.
1: Um, McKenna's twenty five, and she has graduated from university with a major in painting and drawing. So she's she's actually working for the company I work for, doing backgrounds uh, for TV series and and films that are being done. I work for a studio that. Uh, does work for some of the major studios in Los Angeles, so um, she's working there now. Um, she loves animals and horses, and um, volunteers at a, a, a horse riding center for disabled children, and um, so she's got quite a uh, quite an interesting mix of interests. Um, sure. Grayson ha- is finishing up a film degree at uh, Concordia University where McKenna went. Uh, he's in his last year. And our youngest, Sawyer, 17, and he is just starting, and he's he's going to be studying animation and film um, at the same university.
0: Wow. So your kids all take after dad.
1: Yeah, it seems like they all did. Yeah. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah. 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 And they're all tall. Interests. Okay. They're all yeah. tall, too. McKenna's six foot. For a girl that's pretty tall. Yeah. Grayson's six one. Sawyer's so still growing. Yeah. He's, yeah he's probably got a little ways to go. Yeah. And I think Tristan was the tallest. He was 6'3". Really? 6'3". Six three.
1: Six three.
2: Yeah. And yeah. he still had some, he still had a ways to grow too. I look yeah. forward to the day I see him in heaven and in his full height. Yes. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about Tristan. Help us get to
0: know him a little bit.
1: Tristan, um, well, you got the best story about Tristan. He was our <laughs> blonde haired, blue eyed, curly head. Uh, we called him our sunshine boy. Mm. He was always very gleeful and happy and excitable, full of imagination. And uh, as he grew up, he developed an interest in art and um, he was very perfectionistic. And he had probably the most raw talent in terms of painting that I've seen in any of my children, uh but he just lacked some development, and uh so we were working with him to to increase his ability uh up to the end and He would go out on painting trips with us, we'd go outside and to locations and paint outdoors. It was one of our family things that we were doing and
2: um and he also was. People told me this, I I didn't get to see it, but they would say, oh, the whole youth group would be over for a barbecue, and out of all the teens that were running around and talking and laughing and playing games, he would be the one that came back to the grill, and I w- the guy would say, I was cooking all the hamburgers, and he said, can I help you with that? And I also love that when he had to take, he volunteered to take the boxes from our church for operation operation christmas child from our church to the center to deliver them and i didn't know but they said oh yeah he stayed he didn't just drop off the boxes he stayed and he just worked with us the whole time to do all the work that needed to be done around here and i loved hearing those stories oh, about sure. him yeah yeah those are the kinds of things we love to hear about our kids yeah yeah
1: he also had an eye for people who were hurting or in pain and you know looking back now we can see why he sure. was very sensitive to them
0: Yeah, you said that uh, melissa had a story do you have a story you want to share about tristan
2: well yes um i my side of the family i grew up everywhere i looked i saw blue eyes and blonde hair And so I just took for granted that when my children were born, I would look into blue eyes. Sure, yeah. And McKenna had brown eyes, and Grayson had brown eyes. And of course, you'd love however God's made them. Absolutely. But then I prayed, Lord, is it possible for you to give me a baby with blue eyes and blonde hair? And on top of that, I know I'm asking for a lot, but it would be really cool if he could have curls if the baby could have curls and tristan was born with big blue eyes and blonde curly hair and i just let the curls grow down to his cheeks before i would cut him off i loved him so much and god just answered those prayers for me with that little baby boy i was so thankful for that yeah what a
0: blessing yeah, my family's all blue-eyed and blonde-haired too and I was thankful I have two two little blue-eyed blonde-haired girls so that was that was a blessing to me as well. Yes. So at some point as Tristan was growing up you you know you referred to him as your sunshine boy but you began to notice that something was changing. Talk about what was
2: going on at that time. Well, I noticed that um, when we moved up here to Canada, I wanted our family to be able to keep track of our life. And so I just started a blog. Every day I would post on the blog what we were doing and I would take pictures of the kids and share it with them. It was just material I produced every day of taking pictures of what they were doing. And often it was really funny because kids are hilarious and I love the kid life and all the things that they would, how creative they were. And this particular day, his little brother Sawyer had said, they were out in the backyard playing. And he said, I want to make a celebration for Tristan. I'm going to call it Brother's Day. And he went in to get it all ready and he made jello, and he made little name, name tags for the, and he had their special toys on the table. So, of course, I'm going to capture that. So oh, I had my sure. Ca- <laughs> what a fun idea. <laughs> Brother's day. Yes, I love it. So I I got my camera out and I was just, you know, there like documenting it and I took a picture of Tristan and when I looked at it later I saw a look on his face I hadn't ever seen before. It was just a little bit of a shadow. And that was the first inkling. Of course, then I didn't think anything about it. But as the years went on, I realized, you know, I bet that was at the very beginning of this illness that he had that we just wondered about over the years. Um, He slowly began to be different than my other children, because since they were homeschooled, they were all together and we were very close. They spent all day together together if they weren't in the homeschool group or, you know, out on a field trip or at friends' homes. And they played together well. They had the normal sibling squabbles. But he started to pull away. And I didn't have an answer for it. And it was six years that I wandered and prayed. And as the years went on, I began to be more and more desperate because anyone I would talk to and look for for answers was hearing, oh, it's just, you know, the teenage years. It's just mm. sibling. Uh, I, I fought with my brother. Their it's child not true." Mm, yeah. I asked um, pastors, three different pastors, youth pastor, um, a, a Christian um, a psychologist his family doctor because as a mom I could see that something wasn't right right and what I was seeing was a silent anger and an isolation instead mm-hmm. of being a happy harmonious part of us he was withdrawing mm-hmm. and he was there but he wasn't engaging with us yeah And I had been on the lookout for mental illness in my children because it runs in my family. But what I had seen as mental illness was extreme sorrow and sadness and sleeping all day. And I did not know anything about mental illness in children. And I did not know that it manifests itself completely, it can manifest itself completely differently. And we didn't find out until later I we'll get to that in a bit, um, sure. that the two symptoms he had were exactly in line with mental illness. And I just had no idea. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Well, it's in line with a lot of other things, too. But uh, that's why it's hard to diagnose in um, mm-hmm.
0: teenagers. Sure. Yeah. You know, teenagers are so moody maybe would be a good way to put it, that I, I would imagine it would be hard to kind of um piece out what's just typical teenage angst and moodiness or whatever and what is truly mental illness. So how did you get to the point where you determined what was going on or or talked to someone? How did you find how did you find out?
2: Well, God answered that prayer. I had put it on my prayer list six years ago, and I just begged Him all the time, because it was an active part of our life. It, it it affected us every single day of our lives. and Sure. I had just begged and begged and begged God, and then on January 21st, God answered that prayer. Um, Tristan had slept in and at the time i didn't know he'd he'd been up all night trying to get away from from uh spiraling thoughts i didn't know he'd been up all night so all i saw was a lazy teenager sleeping in or someone who'd played video games all night sure um and so i was thinking he needs to get up because there's a job It wasn't a job he'd go to every day, but there was a job available for him to do at Todd's studio. And if he got up and went in, he could work. And so I'll never forget the cry in his voice. This is someone who had not opened up to me these past six years. I had no crack in his armor to find out what was going on. But I said, Tristan, that's what men do. They get up and they go to work. And he said in just a heartbroken cry, I'm trying. Hmm. And it's, it shocked me. And I prayed. A wise woman once told me, in James it says, if we ask for wisdom, God will give it to us. And so I prayed silently, give me wisdom, over and over and over. Give me wisdom, God, give me wisdom. Yes. And God led me to say, um, I'm glad that you're trying, Tristan, and it's my job as your mom to help you try. Yeah. And I sat down, on the bed, and instead of arguing with him like I normally would have, God just led me to just sit with him. And I started doing what I did when they were little, just kind of scratching his arm. We called him give give scratchies. And I just scratched his arm and was silent. And he said, Mom, could you and Dad find me a Christian counselor? And I said, uh, inside, like there's a party going on in my heart. I'm thinking, yeah. this is it. The, the God is answering my prayers. My son is opening his heart to me. He's reaching out. He's saying he needs help. And I was so excited that I was going to get a glimpse into what was happening inside of his soul. Yes. And I said, well, it would help to know um, what type of counselor you, you'd like. Do you know what kind of counselor like are you what you're struggling with and that's when he revealed the past 2 weeks just in the past 2 weeks he said I've tried to kill myself 8 times And you know we 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 never ever imagined suicide will hit our families Ever, It's like the farthest thing from our mind. So even at that point, knowing that he had tried to kill himself eight times, he was saying, I want to live now. I'm, yes. I'm not going to try anymore because I know how much it will hurt you and dad. I want to live now. And I didn't know anything about suicide. I didn't know once you've tried, you're more likely to try again. Mm-hmm. All I heard was... I wanna live now. Yeah. And the times he'd tried, eight, I was they, they they were just unbelievable to me. It's just okay, well that's what you did, but not now. Now you want to live, so we're gonna go from here forward and get you all the help you can need. Sure. All the help you we can get you. And so mm-hmm. we took him to five different hospitals Um, to find him the help he needed. And he was telling everyone he met with, I want to live now. I want to live now. I'm done with that. I want to live now. And that's what we thought. We thought Tristan wanted to live now until February 8th when he didn't. Mm -hmm. And something woke me up at 3 a.m., and I laid in bed, and I just started praying like I usually did when I couldn't get to sleep. But it was different. This was different. The pain was so great. It was like a sword was piercing my soul. And I was just begging and pleading, God, save my boy. I'll take his pain. I'll take his place. Let us trade places somehow. He's under so much stress and pain. Somehow. Somehow. <laughs> This is a ridiculous request, but I'm his mom. I'll take it. Absolutely. And it was exhausting. I felt like I was wrestling with the Lord, and I'd never prayed that way in my life before. Mm -hmm. I remember distinctly how intense the prayer was. That's the one thing that stood out to me during that hour. And the other thing that stood out was when... It's like a flip. It's like a switch flipped off. And I was done. I was done praying. Like, oh, okay. Well, I guess I'm done praying. I guess I can get up and I'll make some tea or something. Mm -hmm. So I got up and made tea and went back to bed. And at seven in the morning, the next thing I knew, I was woken up. Todd came stumbling into our room, and he just said he did it. He did it. And I ran as fast as I could out into the garage because I knew I had a sense of urgency about me. I thought, this is the last moment. I'm going to see my boy. As soon as the authorities show up, this is going to be a crime scene. Right before they show up, I've got to absorb everything I can in these last moments because I'm his mom or pretty soon he's going to belong to the state or whatever. Mm. So I just went out there and I couldn't hold him. He was too heavy. Um, but I just was with him and I, I had to to hold him and I just kept saying his name over and over and over just Tristan oh Tristan I, I had to say his name I had to say his name and, and be with him And then the ambulance came and they took over the scene mm-hmm. and I came back in and the kids were up by that time Todd and I and the kids all circled around and prayed but the only thing that I could get out of my mouth was my god my god why have you forsaken me Mm, because it felt like a cruel joke that I had been praying for Tristan at the exact moments he was dying and later in that day We found the timeline, and it was that hour that I was praying we knew because we had a digital timeline of his activity that he was online with a friend and that he wrote a note to us and that he got off when the note was finished. And then I went out in the kitchen, I would have seen him, and I didn't Mm -hmm. see him. And the reason why I was done praying is because you don't pray for someone who has died. God had me praying for him up to his last breath Right, And that's also what helped me when I said that it felt like a sword had pierced my soul, and I said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God brought that perspective back around for me later in the day, because he let me think, you know, that it would have been worse for me to wake up without knowing, Mm -hmm. to wake up to a dead son. I was actually awake and cognizant and praying for his last breath, and he reminded me, you prayed for him before he was born, you prayed him into the world, and you prayed him out of the world. Wow. And I think that was a gift that God gave me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing what we can look at as gifts in a, in a time like that. Uh, But yeah, I do think that's a gift that God gave you. Yeah, Uh, Todd, do you have more to add to that part of the story?
1: For me, it was an odd timing because, you know, I had known that Tristan had been um, distant, but he seemed to be making amends uh, in the past year and especially in the past three or four months. And one of the things that was different about him was that he he always lived lived uh, slept with his stuffed animals and a baby blanket and he had had surgery on his chest he had pectus activatus just a mild form of it and we were able to get him pr- approved to have that corrective surgery which is something that he had wanted uh, in november so he had had that surgery in, in november to correct his mm-hmm. chest and I remember seeing him just so excited when he was was able to look at his chest and see that it wasn't didn't have that depression. And I just thought to myself, you know, there is something going on with him. He he there, something developmentally has kept him in part of his brain is still in childhood because he still had mm-hmm. that childish glee. He still slept with his baby blanket and his stuffed animals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and um so i was trying to reconcile him with with the rest of the family and build things together and we were planning on helping him get ready for to apply to art school and so i had w- i had all these plans to help him uh, grow in his artistic skills over the next six months and um that very morning um i had I got up. It was snowing outside, and I was going to build a fire and um, take everybody out to breakfast, the whole family, to sort of mm-hmm. kick off this new era where I was going to be intentionally working very hard to integrate Tristan back in and, and you know, try to rebuild the family uh, from that sure. point. And I went out to get the firewood in the garage, and that's when I I found him hanging. Mm. And um he had his baby blanket wrapped around his neck.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um
2: Well, that sounds like he didn't hang himself with it.
1: No, no, right. It was right, it was draped just, over his shoulders it was, it was dra- in a yeah. very
2: mm-hmm.
1: very easy, uh calm manner. So mm-hmm. um that's that's what I remember.
2: Sure. And I, I think that was another gift from God because um, the scenes that you see in the movies with hanging make it very abrupt and there's there's large movement and it's it's terrifying, but mm-hmm. that's another answer to prayer God provided for me mm-hmm. because the law works differently in Canada. You're not allowed to access the coroner's report. It's in French. It oh, wow. it belongs mm-hmm. to the crown and you don't have that. Ac- it's kind of a fight. So I I didn't know I I was very I wanted to know everything about Tristan that I could especially everything surrounding his death because that's all I have left right now. Yeah. Um but God let me in a secular suicide group a special guest was a forensic coroner. And I had prayed Lord how am I going to find out about hanging? I'm not going to look it up online. That's the last thing I want to do is is type that into a search bar. But (laughs) here in this very protective group of suicide survivors, a forensics coroner whose whole job was to investigate a death to see if it's by suicide or not, he has to know everything. So he was able to tell me that the suffering is minuscule. It's like going to sleep. They don't die from a, from lack of oxygen. They go to sleep because the blood flow is cut off first, and it makes mm-hmm. them go to sleep, and then but they don't feel the suffocation. And that oh. gave me a lot of peace. And also, before that, that, that took months for me to get that information. Mm-hmm. But immediately, the information I got that helped me was that, his blanket was carefully draped over his shoulders. So I felt like there was no violent movement or his blanket would right. have been dis- disarrayed. Sure. And it was calm. Yeah. He was calm. Mm-hmm. And I also knew that um, he left us a note and in the note, which the detective didn't find because it was on his computer. The detective was our age, I guess. So we you know old guess, school, so. we're looking for a right. note. A piece, of paper. Note, yeah. yes, yes. a piece of paper. yeah, a piece of paper. So after he had left, we found the note on Tristan's computer. And uh, it was a, a note, very well thought out, with clarity of mind, telling me what I had longed to hear for six years. I know you love me. I love you too. You're the best parents i could have ever asked for i promise there's nothing you could have done i've been craving this for 10 months and i promise there's no way you could have changed it you couldn't have done anything differently so he said everything that gave us peace of mind
0: i think already melissa some of these comments that you've made are going to be helpful to other parents whose children have died by suicide, particularly by hanging, they may never have heard what you just said um, about the way that happens. And I know that if, if I were that parent, that would be a huge comfort to me. Um, and also, even what he wrote in that note, that, um, that he knew he was loved, and this was something that, that you couldn't have stopped. And uh, I think that also might be reassuring for many parents who find themselves in this position. So thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Um, Before Tristan was ever born, Melissa, you felt like God was preparing you for this to come someday. Talk about that a little bit.
2: Yes. I was very, very fortunate to have a woman who wanted to invest in me back in our old church. Her name is Elizabeth George. And she discipled me, and she taught me not just how to read the Bible, but to really use it. And so she had me use different colored highlighters for different things that I was learning. And one of them was, anything about God, I was going to highlight and use the color yellow. And I remember going from Genesis to Revelation, and I didn't have a goal other than to highlight in yellow every time God talked or someone talked about God. And then in the sideline, in my margin, I would write anything I learned about him. I'd make a little symbol for for the Greek symbol for, for um, God. And then I would write his character traits that I'd learned. And the one that I, from Genesis to Revelation, so I don't have a goal in this, mind you, but by the time I was done, What I had fallen in love with was God's sovereignty. I saw it time and time again. I loved the fact that he had such control. And the verse that I'd memorized, maybe even before we got married, was all the days that were ordained for me were written in your book when as yet there was not one of them. And I use that for everything all kinds of situations i faced in sure. life and so that's the first thing that came to mind it didn't just come to mind it was like the hammock that i fell into when i lost my boy was that god was in charge of the length of his days mm-hmm. we were clueless we had no idea even have even knowing he had tried 8 times in 2 weeks It's so unbelievable that your child wants to leave this earth that it was so shocking when he did. Mm. But it wasn't a shock to the Lord because the Lord had designed Tristan's life to be 18 years, 363 days long, two days before his 19th birthday. That is how God prepared me is falling in love with his sovereignty so that if I didn't have that I would feel like I would be responsible I would feel guilty because Mm -hmm. I had a fleeting thought when I woke up that night you should check on Tristan and my next thought was no because it's Friday night and he went to the citywide worship service. He's good. He was with his friends. Yeah, he'll be he's fine. I don't need to get up and check on him. Sure. So without that sovereignty of God being in charge of my heart, because also in Proverbs it says the king's heart is like channels of river in the hands of the Lord, and he can turn it whithersoever he wants to. God could have moved my heart and had me think, No, I need to get up and go check on him right now. Mm -hmm. He chose not to move my heart that way. And Tristan's death wasn't a surprise to him. Right.
0: Yeah, sovereignty of God has been so helpful to me, too, Uh, losing a child to cancer. To know that there was nothing we could have done. There was no different treatment we could have tried. There was no finding her cancer sooner than we did that would have extended her life even one day longer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, just to know that it wasn't some random cosmic event but that mm-hmm. it was actually under the control of a sovereign God mm-hmm. is a huge comfort to me, yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, I can see how that certainly would be in your situation as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, your church was a great support to you following Tristan's death. Talk about that.
1: Yeah, um, we were asked by the police to drive to follow um the ambulance to the hospital so that we could talk to the coroner or somebody. Somebody was supposed to come and pronounce death or something. I don't remember what it was. But
0: mm-hmm.
1: we parked and we walked towards the hospital. And right as we were about to go in, there was, drove up our two friends from our church. And our pastor and, and uh, his wife were there. And they just descended upon us. Our church descended upon us. And from that moment on, we had people in our house taking care of us, taking care of the food, getting groceries, um, running all the interference that they had to. And um, they they were there for four weeks. There was somebody there for four weeks, even sleeping in our house on the couches and just being there to help us through this i mean it it shook up our entire church i mean we have a small church and in canada uh, especially in quebec there's less than uh, 0.1 are evangelical christians so our communities are very strong and um, uh, our church was just incredibly supportive and Basically, I, I'd, I'd say they wrote the book on how to help somebody in a situation like that.
2: But that, wow. they didn't know either.
1: They didn't know either. They were just doing what was by nature natural to them in that situation, or they were led by God to do those things.
2: Yeah. And the youth pastor and his wife were in her home that time too, and um, they the next day, so. Tristan died early in the morning on at three in the morning on three, Saturday on Saturday I always think of it as Friday night because we went to bed and we woke up and he had died right mm-hmm. so Saturday everyone's at our home and the pastor's thinking I have to preach tomorrow but I'm not sure. going to preach that I have to we have to talk to the church and as soon as I heard that I thought I've got to be there I need to hear if anything is said about tristan that's all i have left tristan is not here to engage and manifest and i'm not going to see anything more about my boy i'm only going to see what people say about him and what's done about him so i've got to be there you felt differently though honey though right
1: well i was tired i was exhausted i i didn't want to i didn't know what we would do there we're going to go sit there and listen to a sermon and (laughs)
2: yeah it wasn't it wasn't to to me it wasn't about i didn't know
1: what was going to happen i don't think brad knew what was going to happen either so
2: i guess maybe word had spread so people kind of knew but we did end up going and it we just it turned and i just cried and cried and people prayed for us and it wasn't a, a church service as much as it was an impromptu time of prayer and um and I also think I was in shock, because oh, when yeah. you think, how can you do that the day after you find your son hanging in your mm-hmm. garage, you're going to go to church? I think I was on autopilot, and I just right. thought, they're going to talk about Tristan, I have to be there. And so, mm-hmm. I no one knew what to expect. We just ended up crying and praying, and I think that event helped anyone who didn't know us that well and the rest of the church know Okay, they need help. They're talking to us about it. We can talk to them about it. Yes. kind of open uh-huh. the floodgates. Yes, mm-hmm. to a two- way conversation, and then it then became planning for the funeral was how are we going to minister to the youth about we weren't thinking this. they were asking us, helping us plan the viewing and the memorial service. And the youth pastor felt very strongly about making an event for suicide prevention as mm-hmm. as well as to to help Tristan, but to have counselors there available to educate people on suicide. Sure. And that's the blessing that happened there was that there were counselors and lots of youth showed up. And we're able to hear about suicide so that it wasn't this taboo subject, but it was out in the open. Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: we, we, we often forget, you know, it's easy for us to think, well, it's all about us. But Tristan's death impacted a lot of people and a lot of youth. And so um, they, w- we tried to utilize as much as we could to help people through this as well.
0: So your church family was wonderful to you, and that is such a blessing and it's awesome that those that those young people that were there got to be exposed to that information about suicide and um, probably started some conversations with some families and things like that, which is mm. a is a good yeah. thing so was Tristan actually diagnosed with a with a diagnosis um, he
1: was yes he was but we didn't know it because in quebec you're at his age they weren't allowed to disclose a diagnosis i'm not even sure they disclosed a diagnosis to him because we had had him uh at the at a uh, the hospital called the douglas which is a mental health uh emergency room and um that's where all the the doctors are for that kind of thing and uh, we had tried to get him in in a healthcare system in Quebec. It's all—it's all, you're all waiting for everything. So mm-hmm. the only way for him to get in and get an immediate diagnosis was for him to spend the night in their observation ward, which he mm-hmm. did. That was one of the hardest things I, I ever did was walking out of that observation ward, leaving him locked in those doors with all those people. Yeah. Um, and I didn't want to do it. I wanted to bring him home, but. He was able to get up the next day and um, be diagnosed. They, they interviewed him extensively. He was diagnosed, but you know when we came, when Melissa came to pick him up, um, that he she asked for a diagnosis, and they said we don't believe in diagnosis. You know we don't want to categorize people and that sort of thing. So we had no idea. And it right. baffled me because after I'm thinking, you know what? The, the the people who are the most able to help Tristan is us, and you should mm-hmm. at least let us know what's going on so that we have a better idea.
0: Sure. And
1: um, but after Tristan was gone, we called the doctor there. That the, we called there, and we said we want to talk to the doctor, um, and we want to we want a diagnosis and. Mm-hmm. I could tell it was extremely uncomfortable for the doctor to talk to us, but he did. He was very generous. And he said that they had diagnosed him with dep- major depressive disorder. And, you know, I it's, it, it's one of those terms, depression, that doesn't really identify really what it is. Because it's not like, you know, I, I lost my girlfriend, so now I'm depressed. Um, This is a clinical, there's something really deeper, much deeper going on there that's, that is showing something in the brain is not working properly in this situation. And, um, so we had to, we had to learn what it was. So our, our pastor came over with a DSM, the diagnostic uh, statistical manual or something from Mm -hmm. that gives all the diagnoses and all of the, all of the, um, Symptoms. Symptoms. And there was nine symptoms for major depressive disorder. And I, we read those and I thought, oh my gosh, Tristan has eight of those. Wow. And um, had we known, we would have been able to treat him or deal with him much differently. Um,
2: yeah, because still, while he's saying he wants to live, he wants to live, all we know is that he wanted to die. We don't know why. We don't. No, we're not even thinking mental illness. It wasn't until after he died and that doctor was on the phone that I said can I asked him two things. I said, "Can isolation and anger be a symptom of depression in a teenager?" And I'll never forget the tone of his voice and the way he answered me. He said, Oh, yes. Yeah. And I had my answer. I had no idea. No idea. But that's where God's sovereignty comes in again, because I never think, oh, if I'd only known, if I'd only known. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because Liz had also taught me to keep a prayer notebook with a page for each child, and Tristan's page I had the date and the request begging God to show me what is wrong. And he's all wise, and he's all good, and he chose to withhold. He could have shown me through any of those people I went to. So many people could have diagnosed Tristan or told me, you know, you ought to be looking out for this. This is sad. None of them did. and For some reason, God... Blinded my eyes from that answer until after Tristan went home to be with him, and he gave me that answer later. And only because of the truth that I find in Scripture can I say, that is God's doing. And I can accept that because God is God, and Mm -hmm. I'm not. Right. Well, right. there's
1: that verse, uh, I think it's in it's either in Jeremiah or Psalms, where it says, God shuts up a man. And so, God had shut up Tristan, you know, so that we wouldn't know in his sovereignty. He takes
2: away the wisdom of the elders and yeah. he strips the counselors bare. We had him in counseling with our youth pastor, and our youth pastor felt really guilty for not being able to tell what uh, was going on. And I just yeah. sent him that verse. I said, look, yeah. He takes away the wisdom of the elders, and he strips the counselors bare. If God shuts up a man, who can open him? And for mm-hmm. God's own wise purposes, he did not let any of those people who were invested in Tristan know how mm-hmm. to help him. He has, his, he had his own plans and the right. own pa- his own path for Tristan's life. And really, Tristan belonged to him. Yes. He's our son, but he was God's first. He was a gift from God, and God gave him to us. To us for those 18 years, 363 days. Right. And of course, I want to hold on and say, Oh, of course. He's mine. He's mine. I don't want you to have him back. I want him here, but that's just our mother's heart crying for the one that we bore bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. Of course, we want them. God designed us for that.
0: Yes. Yes. So do you feel like there are issues that a parent who loses a child to suicide has to deal with that maybe complicate the grief journey a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, suicide in your home is an assault on your house. It's an assault on your motherhood and fatherhood. And it, you know... When you hear of people having a suicide in their family, one of the first things in your mind is like I wonder what was happening there, what what don't we know. Mm-hmm. I think it's natural, but it's it's just it's also not knowing the nature of mental health and how things can happen where it's it's just completely out of your control. Yes. And that's one of the things we found just talking to a lot of parents uh who've lost children to suicide even even adults and and spouses who've lost you don't always know the man the mental health manifests itself in such strange ways and and it's impulsive you know if you have impulsivity that's one of the characteristics of somebody who commits suicide and so that impulsivity can just snap and uh and it's over
2: And I know for Mm -hmm. sure, God has so humbled me that if this had not happened to us, but it happened to another family, I know that I would have thought, oh, well, that will never happen to us. They must have done something wrong. Mm -hmm. And that was just ripped right out of me by the roots because it did happen to us. And that's where the tension lies because they say, people kept telling me, Melissa, you've got to think of it as an illness that your son had, and he died of that mental illness. Mental illness got the better of him, and he died from that. You can't be immune to cancer. You can't be immune to car accidents. Mm -hmm. You can't be immune. Right. So how can you be immune to suicide? And yet I thought, because we had God as the center of our home, and we cared about the character of our children, not just teaching them um, in school for school's sake, but to develop their character, then we should be immune from something like suicide, right? That couldn't strike a family that was trying to obey the Lord and do what God had asked them to do to raise their children to follow Him Mm -hmm. and God showed me that, it always confused me, that verse in Job, when it said that when he found out his children and died, he fell to the ground and worshipped. Yes. But that's the first thing that I felt like doing when God took my child. It totally humbled me, and I felt like God is God and I am not. He is so much more in control than I am. I can't lengthen my, the length of days of my child's life by mm. providing a godly home for them. It's That has nothing right. to do with it. God's in charge. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm not. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense to me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I know that there are people... You know, we're talking about issues that you have to deal with as a parent who has lost a child to suicide. I know that there is a misunderstanding among a lot of people that a person who dies by suicide does not go to heaven. Hmm. Would you address that for us?
1: Well, that's uh, Catholic theology. That's uh, Judaism. You find that. It's not in the Bible. It's nowhere right. found in the Bible, mm-hmm. and um, you know we're not defined by the last thing we do. Exactly. And Tristan is not defined by the last thing he's done. He's defined by his life and his trust in in Christ. And uh, that that's just a, a social construct. It was I think it was, historically it was done out of fear. It was raised mm-hmm. out of fear to 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 sort of warn people or threaten them to not do this to not commit Mm -hmm. suicide so Mm -hmm. it was more of a fear tactic than it was truth Mm -hmm. so and it's it's a horrible thing to um you know perpetuate that especially when somebody's in 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 so much pain and suffering um and they say like ninety percent. I've read. I don't know if it's how true it is, but ninety over ninety percent of the people who commit suicide tend to be struggling with some sort of form of mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, they just didn't know back then. They were they were
0: right, right. And I think people are are beginning to understand that a little bit yeah. more. But unfortunately, we we still have people who come to retreats that we have the opportunity to meet and yeah. someone has said that to them yes. and sometimes it's a it's someone in the clergy and yep. that's just so devastating and yeah. so I always like to just kind of address that and um just yeah. like you said that that final act that final decision is not um is not the determining factor <laughs>
1: that's right the and blood it's of not christ the covers all of our sin. sins they, they exactly. go to the unpardonable sin which you know when you look at the context it's not talking about that at all it's about rejecting exactly. christ uh is, is the unpardonable sin not not committing suicide
0: exactly exactly That concludes the first half of my conversation with Melissa and Todd. I hope you'll come back next week for the second half of our discussion, when you'll learn more about the website Melissa has developed specifically for Christian parents whose children have died by suicide, and some very practical tips for this journey that no one would ever choose. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to sharing the rest of our chat with you next Wednesday.